0: Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is global opportunistic and unconstrained fixed income investing. I'm Meg McClellan, the global head of consultant and client strategies, joined today in London by Nick Gartside, the international chief investment officer of our global fixed income business. And along with Nick, David Tan, who is the head of global rates for our Global Fixed Income Group. Welcome, David. Thank you. Welcome, Nick.
1: Great, thanks. Wonderful to be here, Mike.
0: So before we dive into some of our topics on investments and the macroeconomic environment, I'd like to start with a discussion that clients often ask of us, which is in the world of investments where you can invest, especially in the U.S., in the ag or in a high-yield sector, an emerging markets debt sector allocation, Why would we turn the keys over to you as portfolio managers in an unconstrained strategy? Nick, I'll turn that to you.
1: Well, I think when you think of unconstrained, think of it as something that complements what you're already doing. When you look at the size of global fixed income markets, they are colossal. So add up every bond in the entire world today, you get to 100 trillion US dollars and the US is only one third of that. So if you're stuck in the US just doing your thing with US fixed income, you're missing out on a huge opportunity set. So one way of thinking of unconstrained investing is it gives you access to all those other fixed income opportunities around the world and it complements what you're doing.
0: That's a very compelling answer, and when I think again about the unconstrained universe, I always have to think about there's no one type of unconstrained, but broadly if we think about categories, you've got absolute return, fixed income, you can have long short credit in terms of unconstrained, capital preservation oriented types of fixed income. But Nick, your specialization and one of our global hallmarks is our ability to do global unconstrained total return. So I'd love to focus on that today as the total return. How do you think about a total return portfolio in context of that very portfolio construction we were discussing?
1: So the way to think of global total return is as a global best ideas portfolio. And if you think what drives fixed income markets, its fundamental factors, the quality of the bonds, its valuation factors, and its quantitative factors, supply and demand for a lot of those bonds. What that means is that today's global best ideas is going to vary. So you think of that from a total return standpoint, and you accept that the portfolio composition is going to dynamically evolve over the course of
0: time. So you talked about the global ideas but those global ideas as you said come from a changing macroeconomic geopolitical and market environment context. So David if we think about where we are today we're 70 years after the death of Keynes, we're 100 years after the death of Baumol. We've got economists out there debating whether it is monetary factors like the central bank interventions driving the negative and low interest rate environment or whether it's an excess of capital in an aging industrial society so that sort of savings glut that Ben Bernanke in the U.S. often refers to. I'm not going to ask you to solve that debate, but what I will ask you is, as a macroeconomic expert within our team, what do we think about trends and interest rates over the next few years for institutional investors?
2: Yes, Mac, we know that we are in a low growth and low inflation environment. If you think about bond market investors, their worst enemy is inflation. But the risks to inflation remain to the downside. In spite of massive central bank stimulus, as you said, over the past eight years, inflation is still tilted downward, not upward. The solution, I believe, rests not just with monetary policy. Central banks are increasingly vocal about this. They're saying, stop relying solely on us. Fiscal policy also needs to play a role. And in addition, governments must also pursue structural reforms because as long as we keep relying on monetary policy to do most of the heavy lifting, the transmission into the real economy will continue to remain quite muted. Monetary policy will continue to benefit asset prices. We know that global asset prices have risen as a result of central banks, QE, but The feed through into global growth and global inflation has been less successful from that point of view.
0: So let's take that broad point of macroeconomic view. Japan has implemented monetary policy and fiscal reform after years of slow growth and they're continuing to experiment. What does that low for long interest rate environment with fiscal stimulus, what does that mean for investors in the U.S. thinking long term about institutional portfolios?
2: Japan is a great roadmap because many of the problems that Japan has faced and which Japan is still facing will eventually be encountered by the rest of the developed world. Think about what happened in Japan. They have challenging demographics. They have an over-reliance on investment. And they have growth that is slowing and disinflationary pressures that refuse to go away. We see that happening, the same issues happening in places like China. China, too, faces poor demographics as a result of the one-child policy 30 years ago. Poor demographics, overinvestment, and a banking system that is settled with bad loans. So the bottom line is that global disinflationary forces are quite entrenched, and countries will continue to export disinflation pressures to each other. For that reason, our view is that interest rates will remain low for a very long time because we're not going to see inflation push it up and we're not gonna see growth push interest
0: rates up. So Nick, you got very excited by those last comments that David made around exporting disinflation. What does that macroeconomic context mean for you as an investor in terms of opportunities and flows?
1: So I think when you look at that, there's some overwhelming fixed income flows right now. And when you think of those parts of the world with negative interest rates, with negative government bond yields, that's at the Eurozone, it's Japan, there is a huge weight of money leaving those markets trying to find positive yields in the world. So you've got big inflows into some of the US fixed income sectors, which even when you've hedged that currency back, to euros or yen, you're still left with a few extra basis points in yield. But of course, you have an asset that has a higher yield that
0: can fall and generate you a capital gain. So the first point I think you make about people seeking yield and fixed income investments outside of these low growth, low interest rate environments. In the case of Japan, non-financial corporations over the past three years have doubled their external investments, and specifically in fixed income, outside of Japan, from about 810 billion US equivalent to over 1.5 trillion US equivalent. As the global portfolio manager and the chief investment officer for International, how do those numbers reflect what you are seeing and how you are structuring client portfolios, and specifically with the bent of constraints around the investments they ask you to make?
1: Yes, I think there's a few messages there. The first is that Clients see fixed income as a borderless world. So, clients in fixed income aren't really bothering with national borders. They're going to places that have those high yields. To allow them to do that, what we see from a lot of our institutional clients in Asia and in the Eurozone is that they're starting to relax a lot of their investment guidelines. So, what they're doing is they're adding extra degrees of freedom. That means they're buying longer maturity bonds, and they're starting to go down the credit curve. So if before it was just government bonds, maybe it's now government's and agency paper. And
0: that really starts to open that opportunity set. So to put that simply, when you look at the U.S. as a portfolio manager with a global mandate, the U.S. government bond market looks like a high-yield market among developed countries, correct? Correct. It does. And indeed,
1: if you rank every developed government bond in the world, from high yield to low yield, around 85% of all those bonds yield less than a US Treasury. So it astonishes our American colleagues when David and I call the US Treasury market a high yield market.
0: (laughs) This gets us to the concept of total return, which is where we started, is around total return unconstrained. David, let's think about a US institutional client who has a high quality bias. You're an expert on global sovereign debt. If a US client has a high quality bias and they're looking at global yields at such a low level, how can they achieve a greater total return in a high quality investment portfolio? Where would you look and how would those returns be generated?
2: Well, let me give you one example, Meg. In Japan, the 10-year JGB, Japanese government bond, was yielding 1% five years ago. 1% yield seems very low. Yet, if you were to look at total returns over the past five years, the JGB market as a whole has returned 2.9% per annum on the total return basis. How has this occurred? It's occurred in two ways. The yield curve has flattened, so investors have benefited from yield curve flattening. And in addition, JGB yields have declined. So you also capture the benefits of capital appreciation. So you're right, investors need to think beyond the borders. You do need to look at global opportunities. And central banks, by cutting their policy rates further into negative territory, are helping to drag bond yields down, thereby generating these capital returns.
0: So that's an interesting counterpoint to the idea that it's just flows coming out of Japan, forcing global yields lower. You've got flows from people like you, opportunistic, unconstrained managers, going into Japan seeking a total return. On that same point, what other sovereign debt uh, would you include in a higher quality, biased, unconstrained portfolio now, again with the goal of total return?
2: As global investors, we look at countries like Australia and New Zealand. We like both these countries for two reasons. One, they have interest rates that are still positive. In Australia, the central bank rate is 1.5%. In New Zealand, the central bank rate is 2%. That's pretty high for countries that are rated AAA, and have inflation that are far below their central bank's targets. Inflation in New Zealand is just under half percent, and inflation in Australia is around one percent. So in our view, both central banks are more likely than not to cut interest rates again. They will cut interest rates and thereby drag bond yields lower as a result. So we see both. An attractive coupon in Australia and/or New Zealand, as well as potential for capital gains as bond yields rally.
0: So this is a high-quality sovereign idea that's relatively high-yielding in this low-yield world. Nick, uh, turning to you, beyond sort of the higher-quality sovereign debt, where do you see opportunities for total return in portfolios?
1: There's a few standouts. So the first is in the eurozone. And uh, one of our favourite sectors is European high-yield companies. few reasons for that. Fundamentally, the eurozone is behind the US in the credit cycle. So when we look at measures of corporate health, they're actually very, very robust. And what you've got in that market is a market that has very little energy. And you've got low default rates. So the default rates in and around half of 1%. And remember, fundamentally, the eurozone right now is outgrowing the United States. How many times have we been able to say that? And you're rewarded. So you've got spreads of around 4%. So on the corporate sector, have a look at European high yield. And then more broadly, emerging market debt looks very attractive. Emerging market debt, as everyone knows, comes in a few forms. Dollar-denominated bonds and bonds denominated in a local currency – And it's the latter. Bonds denominated in a local currency that we like now. We like both the bonds, so think of yields in Brazil, 10-12%. Think of yields in Indonesia, 7-8-9%. Think of yields in Mexico, 4-5-6%. All those kind of countries we like, we like the bonds, and we like taking the currency risk.
0: David, given that we're sitting in London so close to Europe, what is your highest conviction idea for a total return on constrained portfolio in European sovereign debt?
2: One of our highest conviction traits is to be overweight Italian government bonds. They offer a significant yield pickup against German government bonds. And in addition, when we look at our fundamental research, we see Italy as an improving credit. So when we buy Italian government bonds, we believe that we can look forward to a healthy coupon as well as potential for spreads to compress against Germany.
0: I'm going to take this question one step further, which is many of the people listening to this podcast are U.S. institutional investors who have U.S. liabilities and need U.S. dollar-denominated assets, or at least hedged into U.S. dollar-denominated assets. They don't want to take currency risk. Which of these opportunities are still applicable to a global unconstrained portfolio that needs to be hedged completely into 100% U.S. dollar assets.
2: Meg, one of our favorite trades during this year is to sell short-dated treasuries, use the proceeds to buy short-dated JGBs, Japanese government bonds. We buy them at negative yields. But then when you factor in the benefits of the currency hedge back into dollars, we end up with an asset in dollar terms that yields close to 100 basis points above treasuries. This has been one of our favorite trades during this year and again demonstrates the benefits of looking globally for opportunities that exist, whether on an unhedged basis or even on a fully hedged basis.
0: These ideas for an unconstrained investor are all very compelling. But one of the questions we get is, how in the world do you manage a $100 trillion bond market worth of risk in every corner of the globe? So, Nick, how do you manage risk in every corner of the globe? The
1: first thing is you need boots on the ground. So you need people. We have around 200 people. And it's critical what you get those people to do. Our philosophy is that we're money lenders. That's what a bond investor is. So that means we get our people on the ground to research and assess the ability and willingness of all those borrowers around the world to repay that debt.
0: What does your independent risk assessment look like, and how do those independent risk assessors look at these unconstrained portfolios that, again, sound on the surface complex in a lot of markets with a lot of hedging, a lot of currency, a lot of relative value trades, as David Tan just alluded to?
1: We build our portfolios on the desk, and we have quite a few tools that help us to do that. So we'll look at the volatility on a pre-trade basis. Everything must be done uh, pre-trade. That will help us size positions, as well as looking at the relationships between all the different bonds that we have in the portfolio. We'll also work out what we think our duration is. That's not just the headline duration of a portfolio but really what our sensitivity is to changes in underlying treasury yields. So we do all that on a pre-trade basis that helps us build our portfolios. When we've done that, we have an extra couple of layers of defence. So within the global fixed income team, we have a risk group that check all our numbers, that then do their own scenario analysis and really stress our portfolios. And then elsewhere within the global investment management business, we have another team that do their own stress portfolios and stress test everything we've done and shock portfolios to see, in a worst case scenario, what kind of drawdown we could have.
0: Turning from risk management, which is so critical in these unconstrained types of portfolios, to risk on a global macro scale. David, one of the trades you mentioned earlier, going short U.S. government bonds in the front end versus long JGBs, That is dependent on the Fed raising interest rates, or at least the markets reflecting the expectation the Fed raises interest rates, and also the expectation that rates continue to stay low or continue to go lower in the JGB market. Can you talk a little bit about your macroeconomic view across central banks? And some of the talk right now is around the BOE and certainly the Fed and how rates may go up there. So how does this play into your global view that you expressed earlier in low for longer secular rates?
2: Yes, we believe the Fed will raise interest rates in December. But let's not fear the Fed, because the Fed will only raise interest rates if they do not risk the recovery. In other words, they'll only raise interest rates if data permits. We believe that the US economy is growing at around trend. Inflation is stable with core PCE at around 1.6%. And the Fed has reason to move rates up one notch by 25 basis points in December. Thereafter, we're looking for a further nudge upwards by another 25 basis points sometime during 2017. So we're talking about pace of hikes, of one hike every 12 months. That is an extraordinarily slow pace of hikes in any context. Historically, the Fed has raised rates much more quickly. This time, they are very careful to acknowledge the slowness and the fragileness of the recovery as well as the absence of inflation. Globally outside of the Fed we believe that central banks are still easing. The ECB, MPC in the UK as well as the BOJ are creating half a trillion dollars worth of new liquidity every quarter. We believe that will continue. They will continue their QE programs until at least the middle of next year, if not the end of next year. On that count alone, this time next year, we're going to see 2 trillion of additional liquidity that does not exist today. This 2 trillion of liquidity will have to find a home, and they will continue to find a home in high quality assets that Nick suggested earlier.
0: So let's take it from a macro view on a broad secular continued decline for fixed income yields to how specifically a portfolio manager might look at evaluating different bonds one for one when determining which one to put in a portfolio. So Nick, you invest money on behalf of some very large clients globally, institutions. Let's take Japan for an example. If I were a yen-denominated client... And I looked outside the borders of Japan, and I'm trying to assess the difference between U.S. mortgage-backed securities, European corporates, and this high-quality sovereign debt idea that David's talking about for high-quality unconstrained investments. How do you, as a portfolio manager, decide what to overweight, what to underweight, what to buy, what to short?
1: So the way to think of it is you've got this 100 trillion U.S. dollar universe, and by definition, there's only one set of best global ideas. So the way we do that is, imagine a great big heat map. On the left-hand side, what we do is we calculate an expected return. The way we think of that is we'll take the yield of an asset, yield of a bond, and we'll divide it by the recent risk. So what you get there is you get a sense of what the quality of that yield is. We do that for all the different fixed income sectors. We give each sector a conviction level, high, medium or low, so suddenly what you're doing is you're comparing all the different fixed income sectors on an apple for apple basis. And that serves two purposes. It says today the assets that we like and the assets that we don't like, but it critically also allows the portfolio manager to change their mind. Because of course the nature of global best ideas is they change as fundamental factors change, valuation factors, and quantitative factors. So that's the way we do it.
0: Nick and David, you both recently participated in the investment quarterly, which is how our global fixed income team comes up with that very heat map. Can you talk a little bit about the conclusions from the investment quarterly, the IQ as we call it, and what that means for how you'll be positioning unconstrained portfolios with a total return bias?
1: Yeah, sure. So when we look at our main scenario, it's what we call muddle through. This is very sluggish GDP growth. It's an absence of inflationary pressures. As David says, it means central banks stay very, very accommodative. So in the context of a lot of our unconstrained portfolios, we've really distilled that into three investment themes. The first is focus on higher durations. That's the Australian bonds, the New Zealand bonds David talked about. Secondly, focus on high quality bonds. That would be selected emerging markets. It would be selected investment grade corporates. And then thirdly, focus on high yield. Again, be selective. Not every high yield bond is equal. And within high yield, European high yield deserves a special mention for reasons we talked about earlier.
0: What you've laid out is a very benign type environment for fixed income, where low growth, capital surplus, money chasing bonds beyond borders has led us to being able to create positive returns, even with negative yielding assets. What is the risk to this scenario?
1: The big risk is that global growth ignites, that we've had this huge reduction in interest rates, we've had this huge amount of money printing, as David said, it's 500 billion US dollars every quarter, and maybe that ignites economic growth, and we see a scenario like the taper tantrum in the middle of 2013, where there's a perception that central banks are behind the curve, and that the yield level of bonds is just too low, and they have to be significantly higher. Our view is clearly that's very low probability, but like many low probability things, it's high impact if it happens.
0: so Nick i'm going to push you on this a little bit because we have clients potentially considering loosening those constraints. When you were managing those portfolios in 2013 in the taper tantrum, we saw 60 or 70 basis points 24 hour move in the US treasury. How did you manage unconstrained portfolios? with that shock? I mean, shock is the right word. No one was expecting it.
1: It's about diversification. That's the other benefit, of course, of an unconstrained portfolio. By its very nature, you can build in a lot of diversification there. So if we think in different risk factors, in an unconstrained portfolio, you're going to have, and you're going to blend, credit risk, duration risk, emerging market risk, liquidity risk. So if you've got a blend of those risks, what you have is a much more diversified portfolio.
0: In summary, if I could ask each of you to give some closing thoughts, David, again, focusing on the concept of unconstrained, potentially higher quality bias portfolios for U.S. institutional investors, what would you say? What are your views today on how people should build those portfolios and what constraints they could potentially look at lifting to achieve a higher total return?
2: Our view is that the dollar has peaked. It has peaked for two reasons. One, the market is not pricing in too many Fed rate hikes. The market believes that the Fed is unable to hike rates to a high terminal level. In our view, the Fed will stop hiking when they get Fed funds back up around the 1% region. So because the expected degree of policy divergence, Fed hiking, other central banks easing, because the expected degree of policy divergence is now more limited compared to the start of this year, we believe that upward pressure on the US dollar will be less as a result. Less upward pressure on the dollar means potentially less stress on other countries, in particular emerging market countries. Therefore, one of our key strategy ideas coming out of the investment quarterly that we held recently is to favor emerging markets, both on a hard currency basis, as well as on a local currency basis.
0: Very good. And Nick, same question to you. How do you think an institutional investor in the U.S., should consider global unconstrained investing today? What are your key takeaways for them?
1: I heard a few things today. I heard, go global, go unconstrained. If you do that, you'll find that there is life in the old fixed income dog yet.
0: I think we're all happy to hear that, given where yields are. The point around negative yielding bonds producing a total positive return, I think is a truly unique insight coming from a tremendous global fixed income team. So thank you both. Today, two key themes. One, bonds beyond borders. You have an ability to find a total return even in a negative yielding environment by relaxing some of the constraints on a portfolio. And the second key theme high quality, high duration, and high yield are high conviction for our global unconstrained investors. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more podcasts on other relevant fixed income themes on iTunes or on our website, jpmorgan.com, institutional.
3: The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JPMorgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions, by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India, by JP Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Real Assets, Singapore, Private Limited. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited. In Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Canto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited. ABN, 55143832080 AFSL 376919 in Brazil by Banco JPMorgan SA in Canada for institutional clients use only by JPMorgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated and in the United States by JPMorgan Distribution Services Incorporated and JPMorgan Institutional Investments Incorporated both members of FINRA SIPC and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. Recorded September 15, 2016.